1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, I'm John Plotz. Welcome to a Recall This Book rebroadcast of another fantastic conversation from our partners over at Novel Dialogue. So loyal listeners know that we bring you dialogues between fascinating critics and novelists. And I'm so pleased that today our critic is the newest member of the Society of Novel Studies Governing Board, um, Professor Sonny Yudkoff of the University of Wisconsin Department of German, Nordic and Slavic, as well as the Moss Weinstein Center for Jewish Studies. I'm really sorry. You, you have to correct me on the pronunciation there, Sonny. Did I get that? right? Uh, it, it's, it?
2: No, it's, it's counterintuitive. It's Mossy Weinstein.
0: Okay, Mossy Weinstein. Great. Um, and her terrific first book, I do think I can pronounce this one correctly, Tubercular Capital, Illness and the Conditions of Modern Jewish Writing, was published with Stanford University Press in 2019. Sunny, hello. Welcome. Thank you. Um, and our novelist, who needs no introduction to listeners, but will get one anyway because we can't resist, is Sheila Hetty. So there's so many things to say about her and i'm not going to say enough of them but that she is a teacher of writing herself that she was a time for a time the interview editor at the believer she's won an amazing raft of awards including in 2022 the governor general's award for her most recent novel pure color yay um that her previous books include um the middle stories in 2001 uh tickner in 2005 a, a 2011 collaboration with Misha Glauberman. Uh, the cheers are where the people go. I remember him from college, by the way, Sheila. He's such a nice guy. Oh, you went to Harvard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, um, and a children's book called We Need a Horse in 2014 and 2018 Motherhood. And then there's her 2010 work in Constructed Reality, How Should a Person Be? And so I'm not going to try to, you know, ruin my admiration for it by giving a summary of the directions it cover, it travels or the deep, Questions It uncovers just by pushing aside little pieces of an ordinary life lived with friends and its accounts of testy exchanges and encounters. But I will say, uh, Sheila, hearing you talk about it at our most recent SNS conference, um, hearing you read emails associated with it, elements of your life, it was a truly fascinating experience. It's like the best academic talk I've ever been to. So Sheila, yeah. So Sheila, welcome and hi.
2: Hi.
0: Um, So... Honey, can I just, in the traditional novel dialogue style, hand it over to you and become a third wheel?
2: Yeah, thanks so much, John. And it's so good to speak with you. It's so nice to speak with you today, Sheila. Um, And to get us started, I'd love to ask if you could start by reading uh, the opening passage of your most recent novel, Pure Color, um, and we'll go from there. Yeah, of course. After God created the
3: heavens and the earth, he stood back to contemplate creation like a painter standing back from the canvas. This is the moment we are living in. The moment of God standing back who knows how long it has been going on for since the beginning of time, no doubt, but how long is that? And for how much longer will it continue? You'd think it would only last a moment. This delay of God standing back before stepping forward again to finish the canvas, but it appears to be going on forever. But who knows how long or short this world of ours seems in the vanishing point of eternity.
2: Thanks, Sheila. Um, you know, this passage opens up this wonderful novel that's terrible, narratives, questions. Um, but one of the figures that consistently returns, we see, is God. And there's a lot of God talk, I'd say, across all of your work. And I'm wondering if you could start the conversation today by answering the question, what is the relationship of God to your work, and the motivating sub question of that is: Are you, as author, the God of your literary world? Um, I guess I guess an answer to your second question
3: first. I would I would like to think that I am, but I actually have the feeling that I'm sort of less in control of it than I would think. I would imagine that God is actually somebody with perfect control over their creation um whereas I feel like there is another element that comes into um the creative act and the making of books and it's something akin to whatever creates the narrative of our lives which is in both cases not entirely within our control like I get this feeling the longer I live that I'm not really the author of my life you know um Mm -hmm. so much happens that's that i didn't choose even when i think that i'm choosing i kind of later realized that some other force was actually pushing me here or there and it feels like that with writing as well so um i wouldn't say that i'm probably actually the god of my world so when i was writing pure color i was thinking about it a little bit that way you know that the 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 author or the painter is, is is the god of their creation and as to your first question um which was about like just god in general um and god talk as you say it's just an element of, it's It's just a good, useful word for that unknown element in our lives, you know, that has really no other word. Um, I don't know that God means anything specific to me in, in relation to religious history or like the religious God. I just think that I can't think of any other word for that, that unknown force that seems to have some kind of
2: will and some kind of sense of humor even. Um, yeah. Do you think that unknown force is male? I was struck by the use of he in the opening line. And I'll admit that I think if it weren't he, it might feel distracting in this scriptural tone. Um, but in in reading How Should a Person Be Over the Summer, there's that, you know, oft-quoted line: one good thing about being a woman is that we haven't too many examples yet of what a genius looks like. It could be me. So could God be a woman or is it this unknown force in an eight, a non-gendered mode?
3: I mean, I think it's non-gendered, but I, I did spend a lot of time thinking about it with pure colour, like what the what God's pronouns are gonna be. Mm-hmm. And um and I settled on he because in this book there's a sort of parallel between God and Mira's father and sort of the death of the father being in some sense, like the death of a world, the the death of a God. And also just because the opening passage is such a direct reference to the Old Testament, like Genesis story, Mm -hmm. it made sense for it to be he, because that's the particular version of God that I was rewriting. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think in a different book with a different premise um, and a different kind of commentary, it wouldn't be he. Mm-hmm. Like if my next book in the witness, I don't think that it's he for all time. I just think it had to be he for this book because it is sort of about the death of the father and, and God and and the father being a bit of a God.
0: I really love what you said about like being the author, like the uncertainty about being the author of one's own work and like being the author of your life. Can, can you say more about how you think about those different kinds of authorship or authority, I guess?
3: Yeah, I mean, there In both cases, you're sort of leading yourself forward with will. You have like a picture of how you want your life to be. You have a picture of how you want your book to be. And in both cases, there's a kind of always a sort of um, negotiation with what ends up happening, like a negotiation of one's hope, you know, to the actual result, which is the book or the actual result, which is the life. You know, you're never the sole author of your life and you're strangely not even the sole author of your book and I, I, I think the other forces in a life are obvious but like what are the other forces that come to create your book it's the same that create your life it's all the people around you the conversations that you have the influences of all the things you're reading and then just this other thing which I guess for this conversation we're calling God which is just whatever the creative energy of the universe like wants that book to be or what it wants your life to be you know I think like a book and a life they're both like pieces in like this grand cosmic puzzle so you know, you have this idea of what you want your life or your artwork to be, but really you're just trying to, you're, you're ultimately just like this small, tiny piece of this huge, much larger puzzle. So whatever whatever choreographs that is also choreographing what your book ends up being.
2: Does that make space for the critic and reader to also be these unknown forces? Yeah, I think so. Sure. I think so. I
3: think, the, you know, I, I, I always read the critics of, of my work and other people's work i think criticism is really interesting and and it's just another it's 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 one of the it's an articulate response to something you've made you know i don't really think that its value is much beyond that but it's interesting to have it.
2: you why wouldn't you be curious about articulate responses to the things you've made yeah yeah do you see your own work as a mode of critique in and of itself um i guess that could be one aspect of it it's not the yeah, I mean, I think that's probably,
3: in some senses, like whatever feminism there is in the book. I think feminism is a critique. So I think, yeah, there is a critique in it for sure. And also, I just guess there's a critique of like, probably every book is saying there's a there's a way of looking at the world that is the that you assume is sort of the way that people look at the world. And 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 one of the reasons I anyway write books is to say, well, here's another way of looking at the world. You know, so I guess that's that could be considered critique. I don't think like critique is the biggest thing in my heart, but it is a part of it, sure.
2: Maybe a different way of asking this question is one of the um, common threads I read in the book reviews um, of Pure Color was that this was a a marked moment here. I'm sort of paraphrasing uh, a shift in the autofictional world of Sheila Heti. That this is a move from the personal to the parable. And I'm wondering how you understand the development actually of your novels. Are the novels commenting on the previous novels as one literary project? Are these separate literary projects?
3: Yeah, I mean that word autofiction doesn't really mean very much to me. I think that it's a bad category. Um, you know, I I don't think that I wrote pure color in a different way from how I wrote my other books and I think that there was in all of them an attempt to sort of take down what life felt like for me at that time so I wouldn't put it in a different category at all um and in motherhood and in and in how should a person be and Tickner and pure color and the middle stories I think they all have elements of fable and they all have elements of like a sort of self conscious storytelling if that's what fable is um and they all take from life which i think every book does so i don't i don't know if there was like a i don't think that if there was a formal difference in the books it had anything to do with a decision about like a decision about there being a formal difference i think my life was just different and so the book had to respond to how life felt different
0: can, can you say more about why autofiction is a bad category, which I, I definitely agree with, but I find it hard to say why. So I'd love to hear your thoughts.
3: Yeah, I mean, for one thing, I think it's, it puts too much, It, it for one thing, I think it's just like a way of looking away from the book too much. Um, So when you call a book autofiction, you sort of like released yourself from the responsibility of actually looking at what the book is doing. And you just sort of saying, well, the, the author's writing about their life and they've made a few little changes. Like it's, it's just kind of a lazy way of thinking about the, what the author is doing formally. And I think all the writers that are these days grouped under autofiction, let's say like Ben Lerner and Rachel Cusk and Knausgaard and so on, they're all doing really different things from each other. Um, so I don't really know how that category is helpful in thinking about things formally. And then also. I just think the history of literature is authors melding their imagination with their lived experience. And I don't, I don't know that there's any, you know, any great leap forward in saying this is autofiction and those books in the past were fiction. I'm not sure what we're trying to, um, like, notate by saying that. I mean, we live in a different time. We live in, like, a much more auto- autobiographically curious time. So so maybe that's what we're trying to mark by using the word autofiction instead of fiction, but I don't think the books are written in a different way from how, how novels were written in the past. I could be wrong. I'm not a I'm not like a historian of the novel, but it just seems to me that way from my reading.
2: Are there categories that you find more helpful in understanding the type of fiction that you want to put out in the world? Um I like the I like the term sometimes I like the
3: term like experimental literature like or experimental fiction or myself, like Uli Poe and and all all these modes that that really are about constraints. I, I find myself, I find like a real affinity with that way of thinking about writing. Like that you impose constraints upon yourself and that allows for an interesting way of being creative or making something new rather than the constraint being I'm telling a story in the form of a novel. I like that constraint too, and I think that's always there for me. But but other constraints on top of that. So I I think, yeah, I guess so. But I don't know. I just I like the word book most of all. I think to me that is the form that I'm writing in, and 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 the 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 literature I like the best. I think moves between forms. Like I'm just thinking right now, the book, um, Sontag and Kale by Craig Seligman, and it's these I guess there's these essays about his um relationship um as a thinker and as a fan to to you know pauline Kael and susan sontag and you can't really call the essays criticism and you can't really call them autobiography and you can't really call them um well anything and i i just i like that kind of freedom when i'm reading i like i like that i like to see that kind of freedom in the author so yeah do you know that book
0: no, I just yeah. want to say that it's like I was so with you on the ulipo side that I wrote down the title as kale, K-A-L-E, and I was like, oh, that's so interesting—like <laughs> Sontag on the one side and leafy green vegetables on the other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, can I ask? Is it? Do you? Is there like? Can you point? Is there like a specially ulipo experiment that you did? Like, is there a moment that feels like peak ulipo for you?
1: I mean,
3: I guess my alphabetical diary project, which is. Which I just um, which is in galleys now, and like my friends are finally receiving, and um, yeah, I I mean I've been I I've been working on that since 2010, and it's only just coming out now, well next year 2024. 20, so that was like a 14 year, um, ulipo esque project, um, yeah. So just like taking 10 years of my diaries and and sort of putting them all into an Excel spreadsheet and, and sorting them from A to Z by sentence, you know, the sentences are alphabetized. And then yeah. that was uh, originally 500,000 words. And now the book's about 60,000 words. So it was just sort of like spending the last 14 years trying to figure out even whether, I, not even how to edit it, because I didn't really want to change the sentences. I wanted to keep that, I wanted to keep that, the purity of what the sentences were, but whether I was allowed to edit it, um, to what degree I was allowed to edit it, like how much to privilege the experiment and how much to privilege like the pleasure of the reader. I was really inspired by Kenneth Goldsmith's book, Soliloquy, which, um, do you guys know that book? No. He, it was in the nineties. He like walked around with a, a headset a- a attached to a Walkman for a week and he recorded everything that he said all day long. So the book is in seven chapters And it's each chapter is one of the days. And it's just a transcription of everything he said all day without any sort of stage directions. It's all just one long paragraph. So you never know when he's like talking to the dog and then talking to his wife and then talking to the person on the bus. And it's so I think that was like this huge book in my head when I was writing this one. And he doesn't do any editing. And and there was something that I love so much about the purity of it. Like it's called soliloquy, which is like a very high, you know, (laughs) theatrical term or playwriting term but it's so banal. I mean, obviously most of what we say in a day is just garbage um, and full of stuttering. And, and I I love that. So it's like, my question with the diaries was like this, this love for that book soliloquy, like how much do I hew to that sort of the, like the, the gross excess and tedium, which is the truth. And how much do I, am I actually trying to make like a work of literary art in the sense of something kind of pleasurable to go through and a little bit more refined and a little bit more formed. So I think that's why it took me 14 years because it took me that long to figure out what which, which side my loyalty was towards.
0: I really like your use of the word book in terms of the category. But does that, does the world of audio books change things for you or digital consumption? Like, I mean, you know, we both brushed out and bought this book, obviously. But tons of people are going to consume it as like a bunch of bits on a, on a screen. Does that, is that a difference? Does that make a difference for you? Or?
2: Yeah,
3: I mean, I don't see it as, I don't, I, I, I want to record my own audiobooks for the most part because I want it to be as close as possible to how I, if, if it has to be an audio book, I want the sentences to sound like they sound in my head. But to me, it's an inferior form <laughs> to the actual written book because really what you want is the words to be sounding in your own head. You want them to be internal, not coming at you. Or like, I don't know. I, I think it works for some books. And I think, you know, honestly, some some of the best, I've had some really great literary experiences like listening to audiobooks, but I don't think that's the ideal form for my
2: books. Do you think that we're reading differently? And so the experiment that's happening with your breakdown of um, a traditional narrative form, chronological or teleological in some way, is different now that we are doom scrolling, reading whatever Twitter is called now. Sound bites reading, I guess is what I would say. I
3: don't know. I mean, I think I'm kind of old fashioned in a way. Like I think that I, I just, I don't think I think about that at all. Um, to me, the book is always this kind of um, pure, beautiful creature. And I don't really think about its modification given The H given the internet or something. Um, The only thing that I can say that I think for sure is that my books are short. And maybe that's something that relates to the contemporary in the sense that, uh, I mean, I don't want to read a thousand page book. Um, And I always felt it was when I was younger, maybe there's a bit of a failure in not writing a 500 page book, you know, writing 200 page books. And now it seems like kind of a lucky accident that I like writing short books.
0: Can I just pick up on the angry point? So, I, you know, like I teach a lot of really long novels and I'm just switching in a class from teaching a bunch of Jane Austen novels, which I think count as short, to like, you know, on the floss, then it'll march, you know, so we're about to go long. Are you angry at 19th century novelists too? Like, do you feel that about like people back no. in the day?
3: Or... No, I don't. Because I do think that I, I, I think this is like relates to the internet question. Like, I think we the pace the pace of life and the pace of everything changes and 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 there's there's just yeah so i know i don't feel angry at i don't feel angry at george Elliot for writing middle march as long as she did um it, it's just some it's just to me it's some kind of like blind spot about the contemporary about contemporary life that that feels kind of confusing to me or out of sync with it which again is okay like I think there's something beautiful about being out of sync and I think some people really appreciate that and want that and 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 I think probably there's a tremendous value in stepping out uh, out of this this world where everything happens so fast and into something longer I just I don't like I can't do that (laughs)
0: You know where do you fit lo- something like long form tv which my victorian novel students think about all the time like in terms of things that are really long very unique to our period and tolerated in their longness
3: yeah i mean what was that the the leftovers i think oh yeah long form yeah. i think that was a that was an incredible work of art um that i guess it was three seasons i i think the tv is a completely, long-form TV is a completely legitimate art form. Like, I think that there's a lot of greatness in it and, and beauty. And, yeah, I mean, we, you take it in, though, in a social way. At least I do. Like, when I watch TV, I watch with my boyfriend. So it feels like a social activity in a way that reading a novel doesn't. And I, I so I don't, I wouldn't put them in the same category of art exactly. Like, I don't think theater and books are the same thing for that reason.
2: One of the questions I had in reading your work is, how to slow down while reading, actually. Um, I think there's something about the, the voice in your work and the style of narration that almost allows it to be, you're just, you're consuming it. You're consuming it, you're consuming it, you're consuming it. And what stops you are the, the length of the short vignettes. And it reminds you that you need to stop and take a breath. Um, but maybe can you talk a, through a little bit about um, your methods of creating pacing in your work? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I kind of
3: always like the idea that a book can be read in one day, that it can be. I mean, I come from theater, theater background, so I or even in three hours, like I like the idea of a of a book being sort of like a theatrical experience. Like you go into a space, and this is what I love about Clarice Lispector. Like you go into a space and yeah. you experience in sort of a, a sustained way. You have a sustained experience and then it's over and and you can look back on that um i remember reading um one of her books over one evening and then another of her books like at this spa <laughs> um in the in the in the tub like or whatever in the hot pool the whole entire book and it, it i i I, lo- I love that i love that a book can be sort of exist in just like one small space in time because i and i remember reading like disgrace the say a book like one night in Paris in a hotel room. I, I just, I like that. So for me, in terms of like the pacing of a novel, I I, I don't want somebody to put it down. Um, And I, I don't mean like the way that you write a suspense novel where you're like, what happened next? What happened next? And you're kind of like gobbling up the pages. But I just don't want somebody to get bored and say, well, I am a little bored or I'm a little tired of it. or I'm a little too saturated and I'll finish tomorrow because I would love it to act like a like you're going into the theater and you have an experience and then you leave the theater.
1: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat and heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. I
0: get why, you know, the unity of time and space is really important for a play. Like it has to be the three hours and you have that experience and you come out. Um why is it really important for you that people not stop and then like let a bit sink in and go back and let a bit other bit sink in? I mean there's episodic pacing to the books themselves. So it's like the internal really time. Important.
3: It's not yeah. really important. It's fine. Either way, it's just, um, I've just, some of the strongest literary experiences I've had have been reading 100 or 200 pages in one go, you know? And you're in a very specific environment when you're reading it, and the rain is happening, and you just were broken up with, and it's just, like, situated in time. And so I just think that's ideal. Like, it's ideal if the, the time... That it takes to read the book is sort of sequential like in your life because then it becomes an experience you've undergone rather than it partaking of many different states and moods and and places i don't think it's like it's not something that i'm thinking about when i'm editing the book like how can i make this so that they only read it in three hours i'm just like thinking about it on this podcast with you now it's really not something that i'm thinking about when i'm writing but um I think that's one of the reasons actually that I do like shorter books. The other reason I like writing shorter books is cuz there's so much editing you have to do to make something good. I don't know how somebody makes a 1000 page book as good as somebody would make a 200 page book. Like there's just you have to go over every page so many times even after it's done like just with the copy editing and everything like I don't know if you can give that much attention to a 1000 page book the way you can to a 150 page book.
0: Willa Cather said something really similar to you. I mean, she kind of says it inside her novels um, about wanting, you know, that her characters will have an association. They were reading the Aeneid or something. And it's only with this one specific place. It's like, while they were up on the mesa. And so their memory of the Aeneid and the mesa is like overlaid on one another. And I I totally, yeah.
3: Yeah. And you don't need that. Exactly. I mean, I think that's smarter than what I was just saying, because like you don't need that overlaying for the whole entire book. You only really need it for some for one scene in order for it to kind of like resonate.
2: Can we can we zoom in on one scene? Sure. As I have in pure color, um Mira the protagonist um becomes embodied metamorphosed into a leaf. Um and I'm wondering if we can talk through that move. How do you understand turning her into a leaf, and here I'm saying, is this a work? Is this a fable that you're you're using as a fairy tale? Is it a work of horror and disembodiment? Can you talk us through that move?
3: I don't really remember anymore why I wrote that. So, but um, I think that is probably just how it felt to be in that particular phase of mourning. Um, grief was just you're sort of you're still in the world, but you're away from the world, like. If you're in the leaf you're not part of the social world in any way you've sort of lost your body you've lost your context you've lost the people around you and the ability to talk to them but you're still in the world too so maybe i'm not saying like well that's a i guess that's just a i was just why i wrote that was probably that's just the way it felt to me to be alive right then it was like i just Yeah. And again, I don't really remember. When I was writing that that part of the book, I was speaking it into a microphone. I was taking a lot of walks and, and I wrote it speaking. So maybe there's something about if I hadn't been writing while speaking at that time, I wouldn't have come up with that. In some way, you're kind of freer when you are speaking into a microphone than when you're typing because, well, I don't know why, but. Yeah, that's all I remember about that period of composition. Do you frequently compose outdoors? No, this was the only time I ever did that.
0: So I haven't read your children's book, but is your children's book like? Does it have like that kind of leaps of imagination? Or I can't think. Uh, that...
3: I don't think quite like that. I no, because and also because children's books are of the natural world and of yeah. the animal and plant world much more than adult books. So I don't think anything. No, I don't think so.
0: I was in love with this children's book called Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. Do you know about it? Where a guy, it's like a kid who transforms himself into a rock by accident uh, and he's stuck as a rock and then he needs someone else to wish him out of rockness. And I dreamed about it nightmares, horror nightmares. (laughs) And, you know, but, but anyway, I just, that's what I thought of when I read the leaf part. I just thought, yeah, it had that magic of childhood quality. So.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I, I've, t- I've told this to John, I think I had the over-reading part of the leaf, thinking about a leaf being also a leaf of paper that you were sort of actually textualizing yourself, not you, the narrators textualizing yeah. themselves in this moment of becoming a leaf, becoming nature, becoming a book. Maybe so. I mean, who knows how the imagination works, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's It sticks out, though, because I'd say that in your literary universe, there aren't that many references to the natural world. Um, this isn't an experience of the sublime, standing in front of the mountain or the waves or the the crashing of you know the crashing of the waves and the big trees. Um, how do you think about your work as engaging with the sublime? Um,
3: it's really not a word I think about very much. The sublime, um,
2: I never th- think about that word. Is there a word that resonates with you of? What you want the aesthetic experience of your reader to be? Um, I like something complete. I don't like
3: um, you don't like. I like something platonic. You know, I don't like the hmm. bagginess or the loquaciousness of a, a certain kind of novel. I don't like novels that don't have good endings. That you know, I I think it has to be like a perfect circle. Um, like a a real m- math a real, like, geometric shape or something. I think I think about the word... I think I think about shapes more than I think about the sublime. Like, what's the shape of it? And 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 in the sense of, like, a, yeah, a geometrical object.
0: So do you think about the word beauty in that context? Because that just makes me think about this. Okay.
3: But it's like a mathematical beauty more than uh, the beauty of awe and the beauty of God or whatever the sublime means, the beauty of being overtaken by, you know, awe. I think more just like the perfection of a of a of a perfect shape.
0: I want to have Overtaken by Ah uh, be the title for this episode. That's really good. <laughs> Sheila, I've been thinking about your point about auto fiction and your, you know, your hesitancy about the term auto fiction. But I was thinking one thing I really love about your work is how much in the work itself you reflect on the question of like the self and the work. So like the passage I remember, and I'm really sorry, I don't have the quotation, but I'm going to paraphrase from "From How Should a Person Be." It's about like that artists. There's something about the nakedness of artists being related to how everybody else can go around clothed. Like we get to be clothed because they're willing to be naked. Yeah. So, so I get that you don't like the category autofiction, but can you? Ju- it seems like you do think about that question of like the self of the artist inside the work a lot.
3: I mean, I think in. It, 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 as an artist, you are naked. I don't know whether it has to do with autofiction, like you're naked just by showing your taste and just by showing what you're preoccupied with and by showing what you think and the values that you're making about the world. Like, I think it's not the nakedness of like, this is my experience that I'm telling you about, it's just the nakedness of showing your soul or showing your insides, which every artist does. Um, and, and, you know, the vulnerability of that and of just standing there beside your work and saying, this is something I think that has enough value to put it into the world. Like that's a kind of nakedness too.
0: The connection that I was trying to think about is that, that, that you're doing it for the benefit of your audience, not because you get to show them you, but because you're showing them something about themselves as well. Is that, is that right? Or is it about you? Is it about your vulnerability or is it...
3: I mean, I don't know that there's much of a difference between yourself and other people. So I just think of it as showing something about people. Like, and if I'm showing something about myself, that's yourself. Or if I'm showing something about yourself, that's myself. Like, I I don't think that I'm... I don't think we're so different from each other than... So it's just showing something about hu- humanity, humans. Amazing. But I don't think like, oh, I'm so interesting. I've got to tell you something about me. You know, like, or I've had these... Here I've got to tell you these amazing stories from my life. I'm not. I'm not thinking about it at all in that way. I'm this special, distinguished person that that you're. You should be curious about. That's not. Not. Not what I mean. More that like I don't mind being a fool, or I don't mind being ugly, or I don't mind being the one that um, that doesn't look good.
0: Right. No, I totally get that. And but in a way, what I'm trying to think about, and this is probably like a George Eliot question too. It's about like the distinctiveness. Of being on view of of having something universal on view by way of you you know because that is a distinction in a way but it but your point is the distinction is that it's what's what you're what you're showing is something that other people can have a reaction to because they know it as themselves as well
3: and it's you because you're the i have the most information about my life so like Mm -hmm. i have the you know going back to journalism like i'm I just have the most data about my life. It's not the most interesting life. It's just the one that I have the most information about. So it's the most efficient <laughs> to to write about my life. But not because it I don't I find I think it's more interesting, just because whatever real connections there are to be made out of a life, like I can see them because I'm within this life. I'm within this body. That's it. Like and like I just think it's easier to know what's true from looking from within your own body than making up and imagining some other body.
2: That's all. There's an element in which you're able to navigate um, acute distress and tenderness at the same time. Yeah. I
3: mean, I think there is something
2: a little nostalgic
3: of your color actually with, for the world before the internet, there is like definitely nostalgia there and a kind of like the, if nostalgia, I don't really know the etymology of that word. You guys can probably tell me, but. You know, there's just the lost world, right? That will never, you'll never get back, and that's that's something that I th- think all three of us experience because we're all we all remember this time before, and it's just gone forever. And there's something
2: sweet about having shared that with people and sharing that memory. Um, nostalgia has origins that is a, an actual pathology. Um,
0: people but... died of it in the 18th century. <laughs> Soldiers died of Heimweh, I think, wasn't it? Yeah.
2: But I love more. Tell me more. But I love the definition offered by the the late scholar Svetlana Boym that it's it's longing for a return to a home that never was. Right. Yeah.
3: Right. And and in the case of the time before the internet, it, it it you can say that is true because we didn't know what we had. So it is a longing for a time that never was. Because now we can go yeah. back on that time and say, oh. We didn't, you know, we were so disconnected and so connected in such a different way. But in the time, you're not experiencing that as special.
0: I was just thinking how much this is about the old meaning of the word "sentimental," like in the Schiller essay of the naive versus the sentimental type of poetry. And he uses "sentimental" as a highly positive word, and it means evocative of loss. Like the loss is built into the feeling because you know that you can't have it back, and that's what makes it precious. You know, you're imagining it as something you can go back to, but you can't go back to it, and. He means that as like the highest praise. He's like, you right. go from naive into be sentimental. So really, That's it. So this might be a, a good time to turn to our weird final question <laughs> in honor of our weirdness. And so the the question, um, Sheila, which you've had some time to think about is, what is your weirdest source of, of writing inspiration?
3: So yeah, I've been thinking about this. And I really, every time I come up with something, I think, oh, that's not that weird. That's not that <laughs> weird. That's not, what's weird about that? So I'll just go with my first thought because um, because of that problem, which was uh, like comments on articles on the internet, like the comments section. Yeah. I think I get a lot of energy from the comments section of articles. I almost, I think I often don't even read the article. I just want the response. Um, and I think that's a funny place to get inspiration. Yeah, because it's such a loathed uh, form, right? Like a, a, lo- a loathed like corner of anything is the comments. But I like the emotion in it. I like the um, the id of it, or something. the 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 self righteous. I, I, I have this game with myself now. Like I, all I like, for example, in the it's not that I only read the New York Times, but just as an example, like in the New York Times, like I'll read the headline of an article and I'll be I'll immediately be like what's the tone of the top comments going to be and and then i'll i'll be like it's you know like usually it's some kind of like self aggrandizing like moral you know outrage or you know like you just know exactly what the top comments tones are going to be and i i love that game of just like learning what what people like to feel you know what what what's cuz no one who puts a comment in the comment section is like Like you're presenting a feeling that you want to present or that you are enjoying having. You're enjoying having it so much you have to write it down and share it. And these are such despicable emotions that people are having that they want to share. And so I think that's a funny place to get inspiration because it's really such a low, (laughs) like, part of ourselves that wants to condemn and criticize and like be better than and and to find what was wrong with that thing. Not a very inspiring place, but I, I, I get inspiration from it somehow.
0: All this book is the creation of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. Sound editing is by Kamaya Bagla and music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. We gratefully acknowledge support from Brandeis University and its Mandel Center for the Humanities. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please forward it to five people or write a review and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.